Well, hello, Watch Fam. Thanks for joining us at my last watch. My name is Gun. And I'm Kaylee. In our first episode, I hooked up Gun to Mike and floated the idea of trading up a $100 watch into a dream watch, which in this case is a Nomos campus for Gun's dad. And in today's episode, we'll discuss the watch that will kick off our journey to a Nomos campus. But <laughs> before we do that, I wanted to bring something up that you said after we listened to our last podcast together. Okay. Um, <laughs> you seem a little bit nervous right now. I am a little bit nervous, okay. yes. Well, you mentioned feeling a little hesitant to do this podcast because you didn't feel like you knew a whole bunch about watches. Correct. So the first episode, I didn't even know we were recording for a podcast. So <laughs> I just went in <laughs> uh, not knowing what to expect. I wasn't nervous at all for the first episode. Mm-hmm. And it was very natural. And it was just a dialogue between us. And then now that I found out that this uh, is going to become a podcast, I've actually done a little bit of research, explored a few of the watch podcasts and the podcasts that I stumbled upon. They definitely seem to have a more in-depth knowledge about the watch industry than I did. Sure. So now uh, I'm a little bit hesitant when I'm speaking about watches just because I know my knowledge is very shallow and loose since I'm only five years into this hobby. And so I'm second guessing everything I'm saying now. (laughs) That's okay. I mean, I don't know anything about watches. So obviously, I think you at least know more than the layperson. Yes. So when I'm talking to you, it seems (laughs) it's much more casual and I'm more confident. And I know that you're not going to fact check a lot of the things that I'm saying. Whereas Now I might have to add that in if you're bringing this up. Okay. No, not that I'm making it up, but I'm just saying, you know. It's just loose knowledge that I know that I'm uh, relaying to you. But now once it goes on the mic, it's broadcasted and, you know, it becomes a fact. So I want to make sure that what I'm saying is accurate. I mean, I, I get where you're coming from. I think, like, there's been a lot of times where I've also felt hesitant to pursue something because I didn't feel like I knew enough or mm-hmm. was good enough. But I think at, like, some point you kind of have to just put those fears behind you. Also, stop yourself from doing something that could be really great. I feel really so we're odd saying this. this no. So what you're saying is, yeah, I feel, I'm committed to the podcast. I guess so. I feel really <laughs> preachy saying this because I don't feel like I'm an expert at anything. But here's the thing. I think at the end of the day, mm-hmm. you know, I'm personally doing this because I think it'll be something fun that mm-hmm. we can do together. Yeah. Because we've never really done anything like this before no this is definitely like obviously we haven't done a podcast but we've never done like a project together really yeah no that's very true yeah so i mean hopefully there will be some folks who come along on this journey but at Mm. the very least when we're old and we're just reflecting back (laughs) on our younger years at least we'll have a little audio diary of Mm. a period of our lives and i really hope this isn't just a phase it's something that we look back upon and we can pass along as heirloom pieces and you know our kids would be able to like a little audio journal yeah of these watches and hopefully they'll appreciate the watches that i've collected over the years but also for me even Mm -hmm. outside of just the podcast and everything it's kind of nice for me to share this hobby because i've always wanted to share this hobby with you it was always difficult for me to get you interested into watches but i think this podcast is a good leeway into uh you getting more interested into timepieces as well so it's nice in that aspect 
I'm I'm really looking forward to this, and I kind of just wanted to address that before we get get deeper into the podcast because I know that you felt a little bit like self conscious about that. Definitely self conscious, yes. Yeah, so I think like it's just a, a fun part of our lives to kind of document and share. Now let's start with episode three. Then. Okay, all right. Now that that's out of the way, I mm-hmm. guess we'll just kind of dive into things. Um, in our last episode, you were. Trying to decide between two different watches to use to kind of kickstart our journey. So have yes. you come to a decision? After contemplating for a few weeks, I have come to a conclusion. I've decided to sell my Seiko QZ Quartz. It's a quartz watch from the 70s. It's an entry line. And so I think that would be the perfect um, timepiece to part ways with for this project. And then what was the other watch you were thinking So the of? other watch I had on my mind... Well, because we had to start off with a watch that I purchased for a hundred bucks and change, mm-hmm. uh, my options were very limited. But the other option that I had was a Seiko, um, a vintage Seiko from the seventies, and it was made from the Daini factory. And so, basically, Seiko had two uh, companies that they put into competition in the late sixties, and Daini factory ended up losing, so they're non-existent now. So it was harder for me to part ways with that watch. And that's why I ultimately decided on the Seiko Quartz rather than the automatic Seiko from the Daini factory. Okay. So this Quartz Seiko, you you mentioned that the Daini factory is no longer operating. I kind of remember you saying that, I think, in the first podcast as well. Mm -hmm. So does that mean the the Quartz factory is still operating? Yes. So Uh, that Quartz watch was actually made from the uh, company that won that battle. And that was called the Sua factory. And so for me, I enjoy collecting the watch watches from the Daini factory because uh, of the scarcity. That's really interesting. So were they both branded as Seikos? Like they both had the Correct. Seiko brand name. So it wasn't like they were trying to... The hi- it's own? not like Hyundai and Kia, for example. No, no, no. It's very different from the Hyundai and Kia. They're okay. both labeled Seiko. Yeah. And the only way you can tell is on the very bottom where they have different signs for each factory. So you actually need to be a Seiko geek and be interested in the history yeah. to actually tell a difference. But for me personally, the Daini factory dials are much more uh, interesting. And I think they took more risks in the dials that they produce, where it's the dial material or the dial color. So for me personally, since I'm a sucker for dials, I tend to very much enjoy the pieces from the Daini factory. This might be kind of a stupid question, but when you're talking about dials is that like the arms like is that the, <laughs> like i don't know when i think so, of dial i think of like mm-hmm. winding something up or what so for the dial what we say in watch terms it would just oh. be the face of the watch oh, okay so the face in total we call the dial so for me i'm more of a for the dial color i love green yes i do have a few watches that are that have green dials but also, because I'm more of a dial person, I don't know much about movements. And a lot of watch enthusiasts, they were more interested in the type of movements. And that's what's behind the dial of the watch. For me, when I choose a watch, it's all about dial and not really about movement. When we talk about movement, I know that there's kind of two different type mm-hmm. of watches. You have mechanical, which if I'm understanding correctly, that's the type of watch that you wear and just kind of by wearing it, that's mm-hmm. how it's able to keep going. Automatic, wa- automatic, automatic mechanical watch, okay. yes. So there's that and then there's quartz, like the one that you're uh, starting this project with and that's battery operated. Correct. And so when we talk about movement, do people talk about both quartz and uh, mechanical automatic movements or when 
when people talk about movements, is it solely talking about like mechanical, automatic? Does that yeah. make sense? Yeah, no, no, yeah. it does. I would say when people normally talk about movements, it would have to be automatic or uh, mechanical or manual winding. Uh, just because I don't know if a lot of people would consider a quartz movement just a solid movement in itself just because it's battery operated. There's a lot of people that actually don't collect quartz watches because they believe it doesn't actually have a soul inside because it's <laughs> yeah. battery. I know they say it's a soulless watch. Mm -hmm. What's nice about watches is you know that you'll be able to hand this down to the future generation, whether it's your kids, grandkids, mm -hmm. and it'll still be beating. But then with quartz watches, there are high-end quartz watches, but regular quartz watches, you're not guaranteed that lifespan. But the quartz watch that you have is still working just fine. Correct. And that's why I collect Seiko's. <laughs> okay. Hey, little <laughs> asterisk. What yeah, as, there's always an asterisk. Right now, if you were to find a vintage watch from the 70s for $200, I don't want to say the only brand, but the majority of watches you'll find are Seiko's. And that goes to speak about the quality of the watches. And I, I believe in the first episode, you had mentioned that Seiko went through some sort of quartz revolution. Yes. And when we're talking about that revolution, is does that include the watch that you're thinking of listing? Well, that was one of the watches that came about afterwards. That wasn't the first quartz watch. But yeah. so what is labeled as correctly would be the quartz crisis. But we, okay. Quartz crisis, interesting. Okay. Yes, they call it the quartz crisis because it became a crisis for a lot of the watch houses in Switzerland, where at the time, mm -hmm. I would say over 90% of the watches uh, being produced were probably from Swiss. And these watches were all very expensive. And in the late 60s, Seiko came out with the first quartz uh, in history called the Seiko Astron. And that proved to be a game changer because not only was it only a fraction of the price, compared to automatic watches, but also it kept more accurate time. And it was a genius marketing tactic by Seiko because they said not only is our watch much cheaper, but it's actually much more accurate than these watches you would pay, you know, a few times more for that are much more expensive than the quartz watches. I think it was a huge fad. And so a lot of people went towards quartz watches, whereas now you see watch collectors that will only stick to automatic watches. I was just going to say that that seemed kind of ironic that quartz was so popular because it seems like watch collectors nowadays, like you said earlier, mm -hmm. really focus more on the mechanical rather than these quartz watches. Mm -hmm. Was there a specific, like, t was this like a fad for five, ten years? Or I do actually know? don't know the exact history or how yeah. long the fad was, but I would say probably for a few years because uh, through Seiko, because of that, a lot of the watch houses in Swiss had to close down. And a Swatch was a creation because of Seiko, because the Swiss needed an answer to Seiko's quartz movement. So they needed to produce cheap watches from Swiss. And Swatch was one of their first brands to come out and create uh, quartz watches. I have to say, it was a tough decision trying to decide between the quartz swatch. But I think uh, it was the right call just because of the history surrounding the Seiko quartz crisis. No, that, that totally makes sense. And I guess the question I have for you is like, are you sure you're ready to potentially give up this watch? Well, no. Oh, okay. Okay. All right. It's taking me a few weeks to well, decide. Okay, okay, okay. Here's, here's the thing. You know, I know I give you a hard time about your watches. Yeah. But the last thing that I would want you to do, and I, I say this with sincerity, is sell this watch and then regret it. Even though it's going to be hard parting with the watch, 
One of the reasons why I started collecting Seikos was it provided me a lot of flexibility. By that, I mean, when I was first getting into the watch hobby, I started off with an Omega Speedmaster, but I didn't really know much about watches. Once I had the Speedy on, I knew I wanted another watch. And when I was researching the brands, rather than just buying one expensive watch, I wanted to buy a few cheaper watches or more affordable watches and get to experience the different types because I wanted to figure out what, like, whether I liked a diver, chronograph, dress watch, because there was a certain style that looked appealing to me, but then once you put it on your wrist, it's very different. And so for me, it was just experiencing a lot of different watches and Seiko allowed me that uh, flexibility. And I feel comfortable now parting ways with one or two of these Seikos, and I'm totally fine with that. Okay, you say, you're saying that pretty confidently now. <laughs> as, you know, here's what I'm thinking as well. I, I feel so ironic bringing this up because it was kind of my idea for you to potentially sacrifice one of your mm-hmm. watches. But we are going to Portland pretty soon. Okay. I feel like we could maybe try to search for a starting point watch. I don't know if we're going to have any success in terms of finding one. But we're like, but as a starting point watch, you're saying just like, just any like G-Shock or anything that they're selling at Macy's? Well, I mean, it really doesn't matter what type of watch we start with. We just need to get to our end goal, which is the Snowmos campus. If we were to try to find a watch in Portland, do you think it'd be realistic that we could find a good starting point watch? The only reason or the only thing that makes me hesitant is my knowledge is very focused on the Seiko brand. And even within Seiko's, it's vintage Seiko's from the 70s era. So I don't know how comfortable I would feel trying to broaden my spectrum and trying to find just, you know, a watch in that price point that's like a modern watch, whether it be a Casio or G-Shock or, you know, an affordable watch within that price point. I think that might present a much more difficult task to do. And so that's the only reason I'm a little bit hesitant. Yeah, because there's two different directions we could take. I mean, we could go to different stores that, I guess, sell like used or like vintage Mm -hmm. watches. Um, Or we could go the route of trying to buy like a brand new off-the-shelf watch. Um, I guess for this, like I... At a hundred dollar price point, do you we, think it's our options be are very limited? Okay. I would say. Okay. Um, we Daniel Wellington would be an option. I've never Daniel Wellington. <laughs> it's like a designer it's brand watch. Joke. Yeah, okay. it's a designer watch brand. Okay. In the hundred dollar price point, I think coming back to Seiko, that would probably be the only brand that we could find. I think. It sounds like you're down to at least try to search for some watches in Portland. Yes, yeah, definitely down to that for that idea. I'm always down to watch shop. Like, uh, true, true. <laughs> One of the places I thought we could check out is actually the place where you got my ring. Do you think? <laughs> where do you think? Are you laughing? Because <laughs> we do have a funny story around that, but I don't think they would actually have the watch in the price point that we're looking for. I think mm-hmm. that might not be the best store. But we can just stop by just for old time sake yeah, and <laughs> say hello to our peeps. We had been in a long distance relationship for a couple of years. You were in Korea. Mm-hmm. I was in Seattle. We knew eventually that we were going to get married. And at one point, you had started sending me like screenshots of different rings. Mm-hmm. I knew I had a trip planned to the States uh, to come see you and then for work. And I knew I wanted to propose 
uh, for that visit. But because we have such contrasting styles, I knew that rather than choose one that I liked, I wanted to get confirmation from you and get a second opinion since you were going to be wearing this for the rest of your life. So I remember I sent you a few photos. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, they were they're nice rings. They just Korean weren't solid. Yeah, they just weren't exactly my style. And like I said on the last podcast, like I just don't wear jewelry in general. And I think at that point you had just asked like for me to send you. Yeah, kind of since you had turned down all of all of the photos I sent. Yeah, I said, hey, what style of ring would you like? So at that point, I just started kind of searching out online for different styles and. I came across this ring. I'll try to do my best to describe it, but it has kind of an interwoven band. And, you know, it seemed really reasonably priced online. <laughs> we all know I'm very budget conscious. I think I just sent you probably a link back or a screenshot back because I think the other thing is like it even said what jewelers carried that ring mm-hmm. and one of the locations was in Portland. And I remember me being shocked when you sent me the link because this ring was basically the Seiko of diamond rings. It was literally a fraction of the price of the rings that we were looking for. And so I remember you know, talking to my mom about this and my mom had mentioned how much cheaper the diamond rings in the States were compared to Korea. So I really didn't know much. I had a certain uh, time frame in mind where I told the drawer I'll be visiting Portland to pick up the ring. And so I arrive at the store and the drawer, you know, he's been helping me for a week or so, so we know each other pretty well, even though it's our first time meeting. He shows me the ring, it's absolutely stunning, and just like in the photos. But I realize the main stone is missing. So, you know, we've been talking for a while and we're about to pay him. And I told the drawer, or I asked him, I was like, hey, where's the main diamond, the center stone? He's like, well, you never ordered the center stone. <laughs> and that's when I realized that amount and that link that you had sent me was only for the band and not for the center stone. <laughs> and and in, in your defense, like I had no idea that those things were separate purchases. Like when I saw that ring online, I mean, I assumed that you we were buying the whole ring, which included the diamond. So I was like, yeah, this seems like pretty reasonable. And that day, I remember panic mode. Uh, I was shocked, and I didn't know. I I was speechless when I picked up the ring and I saw it without the center stone. <laughs> and so I remember him telling me that you can do. There's two options. <laughs> he told me that a lot of people actually do like a fake stone and then they'll come back. Or he said, we can try to find a stone, you know, here at the store. And luckily, very luckily, he had a wide selection of stones that we could choose from. Mm-hmm. And so I was able to get a diamond that fitted into your uh, wedding band. I was able to propose with an actual diamond in the ring. <laughs> do you think if we were to go back, he would remember us? Or remember you? He would definitely remember me. I I hope he would remember <laughs> me because since that was my first time and only time <laughs> proposing, it was very... Um, I remember everything that happened that day because I was in such a panic mode. But maybe for him, he's dealt with people <laughs> like me over the years. I'm sure he has. He's probably so, like, oh, dang, just another, another guy who <laughs> yeah. doesn't know the, the diamonds. Who's waiting until the last day to pick out his diamonds yeah. before he proposes. Yeah. So. I'm sure they, they run into that situation. So maybe not for him, but I know for a fact that he, I, I would know exactly who he is. Okay. Well, even if uh, they don't have any watches in our price range, mm-hmm. I feel like we should stop by. And we're also very excited to go down to Portland. Along with watches, I'd say one of other one of Gunn's other vices. Is Hobbies. <laughs> craft beer. Mm-hmm. 
Portland has a ton of breweries that we like. So we're very excited. How about we that you <laughs> that you like? I, I'm not much of a drinker, so. I, yeah, so you're excited for the ice waters at these breweries, and I'm excited ice for waters, my IPAs. Yeah. It's okay, because uh, Portland has donuts. I do like donuts. <sighs> oh. So they have some pretty good donuts. So we're excited. Yeah, sounds like we're <laughs> going to have a busy trip. All right, well, thanks for joining us for our third episode. And now we finally come to a conclusion on which watch I'll be selling. Well, maybe. Maybe trading in, or we'll be finding a watch in Portland. But we'll keep you posted on episode four. Thank you so much for joining us on my last watch. Bye. Bye. Hey, watch fam. So I have a bit of correction to make regarding the Seiko Astron that is discussed about in this episode. When the Astron first came out, it was actually an extremely expensive watch. What I meant to say is the Astron actually paved a way for future quartz watches that were much more affordable compared to its mechanical counterparts at the time. So I just wanted to make that correction. (laughs) Well, thanks for tuning in and we hope to see you next week. Bye.